right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here in chapter five, we were in Jesus teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it in our time. But basically, as he was giving those beatitudes, which basically means blessedness, blessedness, he was dealing with the issue of who is qualified or should I even say who is able to enter into the kingdom of the Messiah? Because with respect to the audience, the Jewish people of his time that Jesus was speaking to, this would deal with a question of their mindset. Are they themselves able to enter into the kingdom of the Messiah as Jesus himself was announcing he was the Messiah? So if the kingdom is near, the coming kingdom is near, will they be able to enter this kingdom. And so Jesus laid a foundation in what we call the Beatitudes, those blessedness of such ones who will be enabled to enter the kingdom of the Messiah. And this enablement, as we see in the Beatitudes, is not because of a person's self-sufficiency, not because such an individual in and of himself in and of his own righteousness or his obedience is enabled to enter the kingdom. But such a one who understands that there is spiritual deficiency in his life, that he cannot of himself give the righteous requirements of God, that he must look to someone else, namely the Messiah to enable him to enter the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus lays as a foundation not a trust in your own works, but a trust and faith completely in the works of the Messiah himself. And so he laid that down as a foundation. And then he begins to say, and such will be the outward character of those who inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's when he talks about being merciful, being peacemakers, and just simply being people who endure persecution for the sake of Messiah. So there is an internal understanding of a righteousness that only the Messiah can give. And then there is the externalness of that righteousness being practiced, a righteousness based upon the works of the Messiah himself as well, even the person of Jesus. And we'll see that as we work throughout the text. And so as we ended the Beatitudes, we saw per se, not so much as a warning, but a warning ver by virtue of a statement where Jesus said, except the people's righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, they shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they will not enter the mess messianic kingdom unless their righteousness is of a different nature in that it surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, which will be, and we'll talk about that more so in chapter six, an external righteousness, okay? But with that point of statement, he lays a foundation for the continuation of his teachings dealing with what is the righteousness of the Pharisees, or as we'll see here, the teachings of the Pharisees. The teachings of the Pharisees that these people that Jesus is talking to must be surpassed in order to enter into the kingdom of the Messiah. Okay. Now with all of that, let's continue our teaching in the book of Matthew. 
and hopefully we'll be able to finish the chapter. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adultery, commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Be first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the very last cent. Okay, now let's talk about this issue. Now notice the righteousness of the Pharisees. So we're building upon all of that. In particular, the teachings of the Pharisees. So Jesus begins his first example, and this is the example of dealing with internal anger and hatred. But he starts off and says, you have heard. So therefore, dealing with the Pharisees. Remember what I told you about the Pharisees? that the Pharisees were the primary teachers of the people, not the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the rulers of the temple, but it was through the teachings of the Pharisees that the people gained their so-called insight, knowledge, and understanding of the law, which was being perverted by, perverted by the Pharisees. And so Jesus begins to say, you have heard. And then he says, but I say unto you, showing that his teachings concerning the law, because that's what the Pharisees basically said they were doing, teaching that which concerned the law, but even more so that which concerned the law, a tradition of the elders, additional teachings of the Pharisees. But Jesus contrasts himself against the teachings of the Pharisee by showing his Christological Import that is, he is the Messiah, and therefore, as Messiah, he can render the true teaching of the law how the law should be understood, and how it is necessary to understood even beyond the law. As Messiah, he can give these this right understanding of the law. Okay, so you have to see that con contrast that we always see in this body of teaching. You have heard that it was said, in, in other words, by the Pharisees and, and their scribes and things of that nature. But forget what they have said unto you. I, the Messiah, say unto you. And that's the way we have to understand these, these teachings so far. So now let's get into the first one. That it was told to the ancients of old, what? 
do not commit murder. And if you commit murder, you shall be liable before the court. And, and, up, and that just speaks for itself. Do not murder according as the law says, thou shall not commit murder. That is an unlawful killing. And if you do commit an unlawful killing, you are therefore to be judged by the judges. And that's what he means by liable to the courts by the judges as the law states that in every city they shall set up judges who will judge the people according to the law of Moses. Okay. So to the courts, the judges of the people, then Jesus contrasts the teachings of the Pharisee because their teaching was simply murder is wrong. If you murder itself, it's just simply wrong to murder. But Jesus deals with the heart of the law the intent of the law. And so Jesus, by dealing with the intent of the law, and you got to get that part really in your head. Why would, did he say these things? What is the very heart and nature? What is the substance that these things come from? Where does murder come from? Murder is not simply found in a vacuum. It's not simply made. It just comes all about out of nothing. So Jesus deals with the literal heart of the matter, or we can even say the heart of the individual. But I say to you that what everyone that is angry with this brother shall be guilty before the court. The idea is this inside the heart of that individual, there is an anger towards the brother that is unreasonable or an anger towards his brother that is unlawful. That's why he is guilty before the courts. You see, because in the heart of the brother, he is angry or as the King James version says, without a cause. Now that's not in the best of Greek texts, that part without a cause, but it brings out in the mind of Christ what he is trying to say. The anger is an unlawful or unreasonable, unwarranted anger that you have towards your brother that creates resentment in the heart. See it now? But let's continue as the Lord says. And so or if he's, he continues to build, see that's the lower foundation. Now let's build upon that. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, and that is interpreted, interpreted, you good for nothing. The word Raka is actually uh, speaking as we would kind of call it today in a cuss word. <laughs> so he calls him a cuss name but never a pejorative, but nevertheless, you good for nothing. So notice there is a, a building of it. So it starts in the heart with this boiling resentment and the resentment, it, it, it grows until now you begin to call the brother that you're despising and resenting names. And he says, you will be guilty before the Supreme Court by the Supreme Court. And I wish they had simply just put the name there the Sanhedrin, that's what he's saying. And the Sanhedrin was nothing more than for the people of Israel, 70 men who formed a court. These was the ultimate court, Supreme Court of Israel, the 70 men, the Sanhedrin, who decided all matters in Israel, okay? So they were above the normal judges. So if you begin to call him names, he says, then it shows a greater resentment in the heart towards the brother. And therefore this becomes guilty even before the Supreme Court. So notice we're going from the normal judicial local court to the Supreme Court. Notice the point is there is an elevation. 
But let me go on. So this won't be longer than necessary. And then whoever says to your brother, you fool shall be guilty to go into enough to go into Gehenna. That is the fires of hell. So what he's saying is, so first of all, Gehenna. Gehenna comes from the term Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a place south of Jerusalem to which they took all of the garbage, all of the refuse, refuse of Jerusalem, all the garbage, and they simply just burned it there. And it was a continual burning of garbage south of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom which became the Valley of Hanon, literally Greek, Gehenna, and that's the word that is used here, which became an idiom for the eternal burning fires of hell. So he says, when you have ultimately have this ultimate abject feeling for your brother, notice, notice first it goes to a feeling of unwarranted, hatred, unwarranted, intense hatred. And then it escalates even inside the individual to begin to call him Raka using pejorative names. And then ultimately you fool. That means you simply despise your brother whatsoever shall be guilty now, not simply before the judges, but of going to hell itself because it indicates such an individual is not saved. This individual is not an elect of God. So Jesus is contrasting what the Pharisees taught, that is physical killing and that which begins in the heart towards the brother. And we can see this as early in the book of Genesis, concerning Cain and Abel, a resentment that Cain had in his heart towards his brother Abel. And it was this resentment that he had towards Abel that ultimately led to the killing of his brother Abel. So Jesus is not simply saying like the Pharisees, he's saying, no, it's not the killing that makes you wrong. It is when the murder is in the heart because of the resentment that you have, hatred that you have, towards your brethren. And so therefore he teaches there should be reconciliation, whether it's for the brother who has done the wrong or for the brother to whom the wrong was done too, there still should be a desire for reconciliation because what does reconciliation do? It eradicates, it removes the anger and the resentment. So in reconciliation, he gives the examples for reconciliation. So what does he say? Even if you are presenting, say friends, you're doing a righteous thing. You're doing a good thing. You're presenting your gifts upon the altar. That is presenting a gift towards God and remember, have thought of even at that time in a holy presentation that I got a problem with my brother in this situation or that situation. He says, stop it, stop it. No false righteousness. Leave your gift at the altar. Go to your brother and be reconciled to your brother. So notice the whole idea is now being reconciled. So the way unto to keep from committing murder, as Jesus says, begins in the heart is through what? Reconciliation. Example number one, even if you're doing a holy thing, even if you're in church, if you're in church and you know something is wrong, then get it right. 
And that's what he's simply saying in our time. And then he talks about another issue of judicial reconciliation. Notice, make friends with your opponent at law. That is, there's an issue between you and the brother and the, your brother, whether rightfully or wrongfully, is taking you before the courts of law. Seek reconciliation. Make, make friends with your brother. Try to reconcile the issue between, for your brother so that when he brings you to court, they won't find you guilty and the judge turns you over to the officer and the officer puts you in debtor's prison. Debtor's prison was where a person had to work off all the debt. And in, in the end, you will be held in debtor's prison until all your debt is paid. But the point is, even in the judicial factor, what is he trying to say? Make reconciliation. Okay. So the whole point is before things devolve between you and your brother to the point of hatred in all things, we should seek reconciliation with our brother or even with people who don't like us. Try to reconcile with our brother. Okay. Now let's get into the next section. Verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, now Jesus deals with the issue of divorce. I'm sorry, <laughs> of adultery. And in the issue of adultery, as was taught by the Pharisees, remember he is contrasting, just remember this, Always, so I don't have to say it over and over again. He's contrasting the teachings of the Pharisees, for you heard that it was said with his teachings and his interpretation of the law as Messiah. But I say unto you, okay, so now let's simply look into the case, not the case of adultery, committing adultery. So the Pharisees would teach that you only commit adultery when you actually go through the external acts of adultery, when you only engage in sexual relations with that woman, then adultery is committed. But if you do not do that, then adultery is not committed. You have to commit the actual act. But Jesus says this, once again, he deals with the issue from the heart of the individual. Notice, but I say unto you, to look and lust after. Now notice there is a combination of the two. Look as well as lust. And the reason why he says to look and to lust is because often, oftentimes we can't help but to see. To see. Okay? But the point that Jesus, and that is with the peripheral vision, you can't help but see people. And then there, let me just simply deal with it. Number one, you cannot help but see people naturally. You, when you look, you see people and then you can see people and it naturally attracts the eye. You can see a woman 
who is naturally attractive. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with seeing a woman and noting, noting she's an attractive woman, but it should stop there. And that's what Jesus is trying to say, because we see nice looking and attractive people all the time. The Lord is not saying go around and act like you don't see nobody or go around and act like, well, nobody's attracted to me. No, no, no. That's how you got attracted to your wife or whatever in the first place. It's natural. But if you are in the case, a married individual, it should go no further than that. And Jesus is saying, but when it's in the heart, you see, these are things that no one can see. Then that is the lust. When the lust for another woman begins to build in the heart, he says the adultery has been committed already. Why? Because when you begin to lust, that means you didn't just simply look at the woman or the individual and find them attractive you begin to desire that kind of relationship with them. You begin to desire the sexual act with them in the heart. It's sin already because what? The desire only leads forward to, or should I even say it this way? Only lacks, the desire only lacks opportunity. And what do I mean? Given the opportunity to have sex with that individual, you will do it. Why? Because it is already desired and already done in the heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. These things come not simply of the act, but these things come from our hearts. So therefore we have to deal with adultery lusts, un, ungodly desires in our hearts. And even, let me, let me just talk about this. Let me talk about this. Because it happens. These things happen to all of us because it is a part of our sinful nature. That is what it is to be a sinner. And just because the Lord saves us does not remove our sinful nature. Romans chapter seven and otherwise the sinful nature remains, but God gives us through the Holy spirit. Romans chapter eight, he gives us the victory over our sinful nature. So when these things do come, you simply look to the Lord and you simply by the word of God, by the spirit of God, rebuke that which is rising on the inside of you. Or in other words, you see the woman or you see the man or whatever, that, and you're married or whatever, and you, your thoughts start going into the gutter. You say to yourself, no indeed, the Lord forbid, Jesus help me. And that's the way you deal with the upcoming lust that is developing in your heart. Why? Because it will come. So you have dealt with the lust by turning to Jesus. But anyway, anyway, anyway. so he continues to say, let's go on back to the commentary. He gives examples. He gives examples of the externality. Notice external examples. If the right eye or the right hand, and by saying the right eye or the right hand, he's using the sense of the dominant organ or even that which is most important to you, your right eye, your right hand. That's very important. But if it offends you, 
cut it off. It's better that these things be cast away than you to go into hell. Or in other words, instead of you allowing these things, in this case, adultery, lust, to consume you, do away with these things, turn to God. Why? It is better to do away with the deepest lust that you have, turn to God, than to go to hell in the end. And that's the basic idea of what he is saying. So once again, what is clear in Jesus' teaching is the Pharisees are dealing with the external breakings and even misinterpretation, external breakings of the law when Jesus deals with the internality of these things. Okay, so now let's go to another example of the Lord. Uh, 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now let's deal with that part because that's simply another section, another false teachings of the Pharisees. And you can imagine the Pharisees out there listening to that. <laughs> They were getting hot as a six shooter because they knew, they knew he was talking about them without a shadow of a doubt. And you wait till we get into chapter six. He's going to tear them out the frame. But anyway, let's just continue with this teaching concerning adultery. So once again, what does it say? It was said, the Pharisees have taught you. If you send your wife away, give a bill, bill of divorcement. But I say unto you, if you divorce your wife for any reason except for Adultery, that's what uh, unchastity, pornea, sexual immorality. You commit adultery against her and you cause her to commit adultery. So now let's look at what Jesus is simply saying. During that time, let's let, start it this way. There was a big dissension between two major houses, two major rabbinic houses. That is the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. The Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Shemel versus Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shemel taught that you can divorce your wife for any reason, for any uncleanness that you find in her. And some were even saying you can divorce your, <laughs> you can divorce your wife if she burnt, burnt your meal. <laughs> Ridiculous. Some were even saying that if you found another woman who was more pleasing to your eyes, prettier than your wife, you can divorce your wife. The only thing that you should do were obey the commandment of Moses by writing her a bill of divorcement and then send her out. And therefore, by writing her this bill of divorcement, you did fine. So that's what one house, House of Shemel was saying. Hillel. But the house of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai said, no, you cannot just divorce your wife for any reason under the sun, for any manner of uncleanness. The only reason you should divorce your wife, you can, it is permitted to divorce your wife, is she commits an act of fornication. And that is a, when you say fornication, it is broad. Many things that you can do. You sleep with another person, sleep with an animal, homosexuality, on and on and on. These are considered fornication. Okay. 
So if she should do such things, then you are permitted to write her a bill of divorcement and send her away and you are then free to marry another. So Jesus dealing with this issue and Jesus does not take the side of Shammai. He just basically simply says Shammai is correct because he is not taking Shammai's side. Remember Jesus says, but I say unto you. So therefore Shammai is actually correct. All right. But let's look at that part. I say unto you, what? Whoever writes her, whoever divorces his wife, sends her away, commits adultery and causes her to do so. The intent of the Mosaic law, the intent of God in the first place, even from Genesis. And you can see that. What did he do? He made them male and female. And what did he say? That commentary that went along with it. What God joins together, a man shall therefore leave his father's house and be joined unto his and joined unto his wife. And what God joins together, Jesus says, because this joining was done by God himself. No man has the authority to dissolve the dissolve the marital unit. So therefore marriage by God himself was intended to be forever. Look at what happened in the garden of Eden. When God made man and woman, he made only one man. He made only one woman. And the, therefore the union was intended to be forever in the sense, watch if Adam put away Eve, there was no one else. <laughs> The intent of God, marriage should be forever and that marriage should only be dissolved in the worst of conditions and in the worst of conditions. Okay, let me just talk a little bit because of sexual immorality. But even in such cases, you will see later on the mind of Christ is even in such cases, the desire of God is if you are able forgive that sinning partner. But this is the one time, one circumstances that you can say, no, I just can't do it or I'm not willing to do it. And you are allowed to divorce the person. But the mindset of God is the hope of God is if you can forgive such a woman, you forgive if you're able. But Otherwise, you have not sinned in putting that person away. Okay, so now let's go back to the text. So Jesus says, do not divorce. Marriage is forever. And divorcing a woman, Moses only permitted this thing. Here's the point. Because of the hardness of your heart. Now, we're going to talk about that later on. Moses only told you. You can write a woman a bill of divorcement. I tell you what, guys, let me just explain it. What was Jesus talking about? And we'll talk about that later on in Matthew. Why did he permit the writing of divorce? Moses was not saying it is okay to divorce your wife and marry another one. Moses is simply saying, give her a written letter of divorcement that simply says she, you are divorcing her but you're not saying that you're divorcing her because she committed adultery. Why? Because if a woman, first of all, a, a, a woman could not under the law of Moses, a woman could not divorce her husband 
Only the husband had the right to divorce his wife. The woman could not divorce her husband. Okay. So if the husband divorced her wife and she did not commit divorce, commit adultery, give her this written letter that the woman should always carry with her. And this was because if a woman committed adultery against her husband, the law commanded that the woman should be stoned to death. So if you got a woman being put to put, put away from a husband, divorced from a husband, they say, well, what's going on? You've left your husband. If she didn't have some proof that she did not commit adultery, she could be stoned. She is liable to be put to death. So therefore Moses knew that the men would want, even though God says, keep your wife, their hearts were hardened. They would not obey the law of God. They are going to put her away anyway. So what Moses was saying was write the bill of divorcement to the woman so she can have proof that she did not commit adultery and simply to say that you, her husband didn't want her anymore and therefore she would not be liable to be put to death. So Moses permitted this. He allowed this so that to protect the woman's life. And that's the idea. And Jesus is going to simply say, Moses was not saying, yes, you have the right to simply put your wife away for any reasons. Moses gave you definite reason because you weren't going to obey the commandment anyway. And he had to protect that woman's life for being unlawfully put to death. But in the, in the end, the whole, the whole mindset of the thing, mindset of God is marriage is for, for the life of the partners. And that's the whole point of it. Okay. Thanks for bearing with me on that. Now let's move to the next section. Verse number 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God or by the earth for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. Okay. Now Jesus is getting to the practice of making vows or swearing by an oath. And we know that according to the law that they were permitted to make an oath and swear by the Lord's name. But the whole point is in swearing by the Lord's name, it, 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 it chained them. It made certain that such a one was to do according to the oath that he was making. So God permitted this usage of his name so that the individual is declaring, I will do what I said I will do. But the Pharisees, but notice you have heard that it was said <laughs> making these oaths. The Pharisees once again abused this thing, abused this oath. And as Jesus gave these examples, swearing by heaven, swearing by uh, Jerusalem or even swearing by the earth. These things the Pharisees did. But what the Pharisees did was when they themselves made the oaths, they gave a loophole that once the person did make the oath, 
he can still turn around and break his own oath. So, ne so nevertheless, even though the oath was supposed to be binding, the Pharisees gave him a loophole that he could break a binding oath. And we'll even see Jesus talking about that when he talks about a person who says that he has, uh, there is an indebtedness. The law says there is an indebtedness to the parents to make provision for the parents, monetary provision for the parents when the parents are old. But Jesus says, he says, but you Pharisees says that if you declare the gift to be given unto God, that this gift it, that a person is no longer required to do what he is supposed to do for his parents. So in other words, the Pharisees will always provide a loophole, a way around. And in this scenario that Jesus giving is a loophole or a way around his vows. So Jesus says, what I tell you, what it's wrong to vow in such a case and no longer make vows at all. Don't vow by heaven for it is the very throne of God. Don't vow by the earth because it is the footstool of God and don't even vow by Jerusalem. And I like when he says about Jerusalem because it's the city of the Messiah himself, the great King me. It's, it's, it's against me. Don't even vow by that. But in other words, in all things, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything further than that is evil. That is the word of God's people is sufficient enough. You don't need to make a vow. You don't need to swear. God's people's word should be binding upon them and this alone. And we see this being taken by James when James talks about, I think it's in chapter five, not swearing. James simply says, once again, he speaks the teachings of Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay. Now let's look at the next section. Verse number 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So now Jesus deals with the next section of teaching from the Pharisees. Remember, you've heard it says, then his contrast, I say unto you, and it's dealing with retaliation. All right. First of all, notice he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's speaking of the law of God in Exodus as well as Leviticus. But in Exodus and Leviticus, it was basically dealing with the law. It's called lex talionis, law of retaliation. But you can't, you have to understand it, not in the sense of retaliating, but the law of justice. That is, and what it was saying was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If a person has done something to you and caused you injury or caused you wrong in your pursuit of justice to that individual, justice cannot go beyond what you have suffered. But true justice is always 
in compliance with what you have suffered. In other words, if you only lost an eye because of what that individual did, all you can do is take the other individual's eye. You cannot take both of his eyes. If you've only lost a tooth, you cannot take two or three of his tooth. You cannot punish. So therefore punishment must fit the crime. But by the time of the Pharisees, they were basically dealing with retaliation. The idea is the insistence upon judgment. And that's what we have to see. And that's what Jesus begins to say. The Pharisees were misinterpreting, bending the law and in their bending of the law, they were misinterpreting it as a demand from the individual. And what, and Jesus clarifies this. Notice what I said. When we get into the issue, you as God's people do not have to insist upon judgment. We can be merciful even when we have been wronged. We don't always have to say, you did this to me and therefore I demand that this shall be done unto you. We should sometimes suffer the wrong. So let me just get into the point that Jesus was trying to make. What was the point? The examples. Notice if a person slaps you on, if a person slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. The idea is if an individual wrongly, wrongly strikes you, then allow the striking and even says fine. Since this is how you feel, strike the other cheek. So the idea is, notice, instead of retaliating, you slap me, I slap you. Jesus said, no, they slap you, right cheek, suffer it, turn the other, allow that cheek. Notice, do not insist upon your rights. Second example, if a person takes you to court, sues and takes your, what it says here, shirt, the word actually means tunic, the inner garment, turn and offer that individual, the idea is, who wrongfully sued you and got a judgment against you. Give him the outer coat, the outer, your coat also, which is the outer garment. And the outer garment was so special because even under the law, what does it say? If a person shall, a person shall give for, uh, 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 what is it, what is it called? Um, if you borrowing some money from somebody and you give them and say, I tell you what, you hold my cloak and, and I'll pay you your money back. And, and then you give me my cloak because the cloak was so important. The outer cloak to keep the person from suffering the elements, the cold of the night, even the borrower, the person to whom he borrowed money from, I'm sorry, should return the cloak. So the cloak was seen as a very important garment to the individual. Return it before the nightfall because such a one needs his out of coat. So notice what Jesus is saying in comparison. If they even sue you before the courts of law and take your inner garment, even give them your outer cloak, one that is more important. Again, do not resist him. You do not have to retaliate. And then finally, what does he say? If a person asks of you, don't turn him away that borrows from you. It deals with the heart of the individual in meeting the need or seeing the need, even in people who just awful, 
awful. So what is Jesus trying to say to us? Once again, in all of these matters, what Jesus is dealing with is the heart of the individual, where the Pharisees would teach, demand your rights, even to the point of retaliation and wrongfully so. The scriptures did not teach retaliate, the scriptures taught justice. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to always demand your rights. And that is a wonderful thing for us to hear today because that is when I consider how things are in this country today, people are always demanding their rights. I got a right to this and I got a right to that and I deserve this and I deserve that. Jesus is saying to his people is, and we're going to see this at the very end. It is of godly. It's godliness to not always demand your rights. And when people cause you harm, don't seek to harm them. Notice the apostle Paul kind of brought this out in a wonderful way in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy notice, if your enemy, someone who hates you, someone who has done you wrong, if he is hungry, what? Don't sit there and watch him, watch him starve, but feed him. If, if he is if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you put something on his mind. You make him consider who you are, who you represent, why you are doing these things. And then what? For what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay them. Let God pay them back. Not you seek to pay them back. So that's what. So you see what he's trying to say here in all of the teaching that Jesus is trying to give here. You don't have to seek justice. Let God pay them back. But when they do evil to you, you do them good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. And that's what Jesus is teaching. So now let's go to the next section. 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See it? See it? So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your father, heavenly father is perfect. Okay. <laughs> and notice in the derivative of all of these things, as I just said to you from apostle Paul, loving your enemies, those who hate you. This is what is being derived from that. Doing good, being not overcome with evil, but overcoming evil with good. So Jesus began to say here, the Pharisees have taught you as Jewish people, no, as Jewish people, the, those who hate you, Gentiles and others, you have the right and you should hate those, right? Jesus hate them too. Jesus saying, no, love, even your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. And watch this, the difficult one, pray for those who persecute you. 
Pray for people who misuse you. Pray for people who do you wrong. Pray for people who talk about you, scandalize you. All these things again, and you know they do. Don't wish them evil. Don't wish them harm because it does come inside of us. And we do wish the Lord would do certain things to folk. I wish God would get them. <laughs> Jesus said, no, that is not your spirit. That is not the spirit that you should have. But notice on the contrary, look at your father. Look at God in heaven. Let him be the ultimate example. What example? Concerning bad people. What does he do? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He doesn't just let the sun rise and bless the good people. He let the sun rise on evil people, even people who are evil. And don't think that God cannot cause his son not to rise. Look what he did to the Egyptians when he gave them the three days of darkness. When they had such darkness, it was like a thick darkness you could feel with your hands. But in Goshen in the land of where the Israelites were, they had light. God is able to darken his enemies and only give light. But no, what does he do? Even to those who hate him, he gives light light to them. And the second example concerning that rain to bless the crops. Notice he not only give rain to bless the crops of his own people, the righteous, but he gives rain to bless the crops of the unrighteous. And then he continues with this example. Notice of personal relationships. He says, look, if you only love the people who love you, your brethren and the like, he says, okay, what good is that? Because what? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Now that's a harm. <laughs> Remember, concerning the Jewish people, they hated the tax collectors. They considered the tax collector to be unclean. If you bump into a tax collector in the common market, go home, burn your clothes, take a bath. The tax collectors ain't going into the kingdom. He said, tax collectors love fellow tax collectors. So to compare them, the righteous to the tax collectors, he says, you know better than the tax collectors if you only love people who love you. Comparing them in this way was really a slap in the face. But then he even continued on, notice, to greeting people. And if you only greet your brothers, he says, okay, so what's the big deal about that? Why? Gentiles do the same. Remember, as in the mind of the Jewish people, Gentiles were considered to be dogs. <laughs> he says, so what's the difference between them and you? I say unto you, what? Be perfect. And that is the idea of spiritually mature in the sense of being merciful, in the sense of being good to all people, loving to all people. Be merciful to those who hate you, those who use you, those who persecute, persecute you, to the Gentile, to everybody, just like your father is. Be good to those people who ain't good to you. Mimic your father. Show that you, or should, it say, should I say it this way? Demonstrate that you truly are the children of God by being like God. Demonstrate, and that's what he says in the end when he says, 
be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Demonstrate that you are God's children by being like your heavenly Father. What? He does good to bad people as well as he does good, does to the good people. Demonstrate this same likeness, okay? All right, guys, thanks for joining me as we wrapped up Matthew chapter five. Join us the next time as we get into chapter six. And remember, all along what Jesus is doing and teaching is, except your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no ways enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus will continue biting the Pharisees in chapter six as he looks at the acts, the external acts of righteousness, the hypocritical acts of the righteousness. And Jesus says unto his people, but you do not do these things and you do not be this way. All right, guys, thanks for joining me and we'll see you next time. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment, okay? So help me out.